My name is Grant Vermeer, a member of the Crown Refs community. My first year as a high school official, that's when I found out about the Crown Refs community. Having my military background, I love being a part of teams. I want to be a part of a group that has high standards, that holds each other accountable, but also supports and loves each other, and has a desire for everyone in the group to grow. If you're a young referee or someone who loves refereeing and wants to be a part of a group, this is an amazing community for you. I feel like I've gotten better as an official. I've had a community and friends and support through this process, which can otherwise be a little bit lonely as you're on the road a lot. The culture is amazing in here. Make sure to come check it out. Serve the game. To join our community, simply go to patreon.com backslash crown to choose your tier, or you can schedule a one-to-one call with me directly if you email me at crownrefs at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Greetings and welcome to the Crown Rest Pod. Today we have the privilege of talking to Ken Widgeon Jr. about his fantastic journey to being a full-time professional referee for the NBL in Australia. Ken started as a standout high school player in New Jersey, went on to play some college ball, caught the officiating bug while he was in college. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Glad you could be here. Thank you for having me, Sean. Really happy to be here. How'd you get started? How'd you get hooked up with the Crown Rest community? I would say I started out with Crown Refs, seeing them on Instagram, and um, they were definitely a big help uh, during the pandemic when everything shut down. It was actually one of the main things that I listened to just to kind of stay connected with the officiating community. We weren't able to meet up in person, so um, just having that source of referee information and really kind of personal conversations from different types of referees. It was definitely something that, uh, that that helped me get through that difficult time. Uh, sounds great. Um, so I hear you're in Australia now. Yep. Uh, what is that like? What is it, you know, because you came from Jersey. Now you're, what, what's it been like going, doing life in Australia now? Well, being in Australia, it's definitely been an amazing experience. I would say the scariest part about it was the journey over. This is my first time leaving North America at all. So the uh, the idea of flying over the entire Pacific Ocean was definitely uh, something that I had to get mentally prepared for. But I took an overnight flight, so it basically felt like a long, uncomfortable night's sleep. And then I kind of just woke up in Australia. The, uh, the MBL has been more than hospitable you know, for me in this transition, they put me in a hotel the first month out here that allowed me to really relax and get settled and be very intentional about where I wanted my apartment to be, where I wanted to live and kind of how I wanted to get situated and starting out here. Nice. So what are the, like, the people and the culture? Is there any food that you found or you found you don't want to eat ever again? This episode of the Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by RefereeStore.com. To save 15% on all United Attire products, enter Crown15 at checkout. We hope you enjoy this episode and do us one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. It's, it's tough to say coming from New York and New Jersey because that's a very, very food focused area and some of the best food on earth is definitely coming out of New York and New Jersey, but I haven't had a bad meal out here yet. 
I mean, uh, the, the food out here is absolutely amazing. It's very multicultural, much like in New York and New Jersey. So I've been able to kind of experiment with, uh, with my palate and try foods from all over the world. And I can honestly say this is some of the best food I've ever had in my life out here, man. What about people on the street? What's that like? Talking to people the people on the street them. in general are, are very, very nice out here. I would say Melbourne and uh, Sydney are definitely two cities that kind of feel like New York City, like New Jersey, except it's not as populated. So I would say it's a little bit more laid back, but it's still got that busy city feel. So I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you go up to areas like, uh, or go out to areas like Perth or, or up to Cairns, more um, more beachy areas. So it kind of feels like uh, the Jersey Shore a little bit. And right. um, I'm actually going down to Tasmania and I've been down to Tasmania a couple of times. And I would say you get more of the, uh, more of the rural sort of country feel that you get in certain areas of the country. So of certain areas of America. So I would say it just feels like a lot like America, just with a lot less people. All right, all right. Um, so what's it been like, um, you know, you don't have any family, you don't have any friends that are with you. What's it been like from that part, part of just moving 10,000 miles away? Well, luckily, you know, technology has advanced to the point where I can just pick up a phone. I can FaceTime my mom and dad anytime I want. I talk to them every day. I talk to my brother every day. Um, I got tons of friends that I'm still connected with on Instagram. We, we chat pretty much every day. So I definitely don't feel as lonely as I thought I would feel. I don't feel isolated at all. And the uh, officiating staff out here has been more than welcome and accommodating. So I made some good friends out here as well. And um, then the little bit of solitude that I do have, you know, coming home from a trip, coming home from a game, it's actually been been very valuable. You know, these are some of the loudest and, and most crowded arenas I've ever worked in. So those couple minutes of silence when I first get home, it definitely feels good. I, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, um, so, so what do you call your dad? You call him Pop, call him Dad? I call him Dad. I call him Dad, okay. Uh, so when we were talking about earlier, you're, I heard dad helped you get into athletics, helped you get into basketball. Did I hear that right? Absolutely. Uh, my dad grew up playing basketball. He's uh, from the Bronx, and then he moved to uh, Northeast Orange uh, around 13, 14 years old. He ended up becoming a basketball coach at his high school in Valesburg. And uh, then he ended up moving into officiating about 10 to 15 years later. So basketball's been a part of my life since I was born. Athletics has been a part of my life since I was born. I was able to play some other sports, soccer, track and field. So I'm definitely thankful for my athletic background. And uh, you were a player for a while. What, what position did you play? What did you like to do on the court? That depended on what team I was on. Um, I was really fortunate to play on some very high-level teams as a kid. Um, you know, going from the Central Jersey Jammers, uh, Jersey City Boys Club, North Rams, New York Gauchos. I would be on squads where I'm the biggest guy on the team, and then I would be on squads where I'm the smallest guy on the team. So I think that allowed me to develop somewhat of a diverse game. But uh, unfortunately, high-level teams don't need six-foot-three power forwards. So <laughs> <laughs> luckily, I ended up finding a position where um, I was able to be very effective in officiating. But 
I, I definitely love my playing career. I met some great people. I was able to learn from uh, some great coaches. And I think it was definitely an integral part of my development as an official and as a person. Awesome. Um, and so going from a player, then that's what brought you into officiating or that that's kind of about when you moved into officiating in the college time, wasn't that? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, my freshman year, I attended College of Mount St. Vincent and after basketball season, uh, intramural season started, and I saw on the poster they were looking for referees. So having watched my dad referee for about 10 years before I started playing high school basketball, I kind of had the feel for it. So I just told myself, listen, I, I can do this. So I took the train home. <laughs> I stole one of his shirts. I stole one of his whistles, came on back to campus and just kind of went at it. They were paying uh, 25, 30 bucks a game. So as a, as a broke college student, you know, that's a, that's a million dollars. So oh yeah, definitely, oh, yeah. definitely enjoyed that experience. Uh, fast forward to my sophomore year of college, I transferred back home to Rutgers North, ended up working the uh, intramural league there. And when my dad found out that I was officiating again, I guess he gathered that I took an interest to it. So he offered to pay for my NFHS certification class to get me started doing high school basketball and just kind of took it and ran from there. Um, so just because he bought you the course and I've got lots of teenagers and young adults in my life, just because dad buys them some doesn't mean they bought in. What, what, what about officiating bit you? Why did you decide, Hey, this is something I want to pursue. I would say the main thing was being involved in the game, but having a different perspective on it. Um, having played at a relatively high level, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that falls on you as a player to win the game. And I think officiating kind of gave me that same feel from a management standpoint. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility that falls on the referee to make sure that the game is officiated fair, to make sure that everybody, you know, leaves the court as safe as when they walked in. So I think that element of pressure and responsibility is something that that I gravitated to as a referee early on. Right. And also, you can't get subbed out if you make a mistake. It's just us out there. You <laughs> <laughs> can't get subbed out, but man, you can get lots of tape on that. So absolutely, it's part of the life. Um, so uh, speaking of tape and and and, and learning from your mistakes. Uh, what was kind of your journey from uh, going from high school ball um, up into some bigger time stuff? It started out getting certified uh, through the NFHS and honestly, just trying to referee as much basketball as I could get my hands on. Uh, men's leagues, youth ball, AAU. Uh, I remember after I passed my certification class, I went to uh, Hoop Heaven in Bridgewater uh, linked up with a guy by the name of Marcel Gosling, who was one of my first mentors. And, you know, I kind of started out working there, just as many hoop heaven games as I can get. I went over to Metuchen Sportsplex, started working men's league games. And my logic was, you know, the more games I referee, the more experience I get, the better I'll get. And I think working uh, some of those men's league games allowed me to gravitate more towards uh, the pro pro aspect of basketball. And I was yeah. able to get in touch with a gentleman by the name of Dalton Bromwell, who runs the IBO in New Jersey. 
And he gave me my first taste of actual pro-am basketball, working at uh, Branchbrook Park, uh, working um, East Orange, uh, Rally Park Pro-Am Leagues. And I think the first time I got on a, a court working Pro-Am was at the George Gigi Brown Tournament in Plainfield, my hometown. So once I got that first taste of an intense Pro-Am style summer ball environment, that's what gave me the bug and, and really motivated me to develop into a professional basketball official. Uh, paint that picture of what that environment's like for us, right? You know, and, you know, I, I saw a photo, the photographer's literally on the court, right? Media's on the court running. And I mean, I take media off my end line, not much on the court. So what's that environment like? There's a lot of survival that uh that that an official has to keep in mind because as structured of an environment as you want it to be it's it's just not you know you go into some of those summer venues where you know the people in the crowd may have had a little something to drink a little something to smoke the coaches may have had a little something to drink a little something to smoke. the players might have had a little something to drink a little something to smoke and it's a matter of staying strong within yourself and calling your game despite the situation not being exactly how it looks in the book and just doing the best you can. Most of the time, if you do what you know how to do and you're very strong and, and convincing in your signals and, and what you're calling, they'll give you a little bit of grief, but for the most part, they respect you and every game needs good referees. So as much flack as they'll give you, I've noticed that um, there's been very few, if any, venues where I'll ref a game and they'll be like, yeah, don't ever come back. We don't want him back. I just try to referee the best game I can. Half the people aren't going to like my calls. Half the people are going to like my calls. But for me, it's at just one half. play at a time. At least half. Yeah. For me, it's just one play at a time, do the best I can, and um, survive to the next game. Uh you throw a word out there, respect, and I find that that makes a big difference. When I treat, you know, fans, players, coaches, when I treat them with respect, that that really goes a long way to helping that on-court relationship. Is that something that, that you find in your game when, when you're working? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, we're all humans. You know, sports tends to bring out the, the very intense aspect of people. You know, we're all competitors. We're all trying to win. But I think as a referee, when you keep your energy level um, at a pretty much a medium and you approach coaches and players with that, you know, moderate or, or medium energy, they respond to that. So if a coach or a player is up at 10, you respond at about a five, that'll bring them down to about a seven, 6.5. Now we're seeing a little bit more eye to eye. Now we can actually communicate. and. Uh, maybe get something done out here. It doesn't always work out like that. Some guys are committed to staying at 10, but I found that if I stay at about a five, maybe a six, 6.5, I'm able to get the game done the best I can and survive to the next game. There it is, there it is. Um, you mentioned uh, Marcel. Um, I've seen some quotes about this guy. Some folks have heard Ronnie Nunn. Folks might've heard about him. Uh, Absolutely. Talk to me about mentors, what they've done for you, who they are, of course. Uh, what have mentors helped you get to where you're at? Uh, I've been blessed to have a, a tremendous amount of mentors 
throughout my referee journey. Um, Marcel was definitely one of my first mentors. Uh, Ronnie Nunn was a very powerful mentor in, in my career. Uh, definitely the, the main person who helped me get out here uh, from a college standpoint. Um, Mike Schmidt, John Levinson, um, Taker Stewart, they were, uh, you know, the first people to, to give me a shot in college basketball. And, you know, getting picking up jewels from them every summer definitely, you know, helped me develop as a referee. Uh, Dr. Ed Meyer, um, tremendous game manager, tremendous personality, you know, trying to pick up things from, you know, ways that he talks to people and communicates to people was definitely very helpful. Gary Schimmel, uh, tremendous pro official, tremendous college official, you know, just understanding how some of the more veteran officials tend to work with people, work with players, how they navigate certain situations and trying to just pick up little things from all of them. is definitely something that I can definitely thank them for, you know, helping me develop as a referee. Cool. And there's a ton more mentors that I could run down the list of, but I'm afraid I'm going <laughs> to forget somebody, but you know, everybody, they, they know, they know who they are. And I love all you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I, I will soak in as much as I can from everybody, you know, I'm like, Hey, can I buy you dinner? Can I buy you lunch? You know, Absolutely. And traveling to camps all over the country, um, you know, just getting to just meet a whole lot of different people with so much different experience. I can think of, you know, the TBL, for example, a guy like a Jerry Middleton, longtime pro referee who's been all over the country, Mike Bobiak. You know, just watching those guys work, being able to talk to them, um, you know, just soak up knowledge from them is is definitely the, the the biggest part of my development. Just listening to guys. It may not all stick, but if you can get one thing and bring that into your game, the money's well worth it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um so off the court, uh, and I, I noticed you're looking pretty pretty good up there. Um Talked about you cutting hair. How did how did you get into cutting hair? What what's that barber shop life? You know what what's that part of your life like? Well, um, I actually chose to wear this shirt specifically to um, show a lot of love and tribute to the barber business because I can honestly say if it wasn't for mainly two barbers and two outstanding businessmen, I probably wouldn't be a referee and I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Uh, the first is uh, Mr. Poncho and Mr. Hare Barbershop in East Orange. His sister uh, was a lady by the name of Lee Hendricks, who was also one of my first mentors. May she rest in peace. Uh, she ran free referee camps for new referees who were just getting started, wanted to learn the game. And uh, that's the lady that actually taught my dad how to referee. So once I got certified, he sent me right to Lee and we started working, you know, third, fourth grade basketball games. And just, yeah. she was the one who really laid the foundation of proper mechanics, proper positioning, um, knowing the rules and just doing what the book says. You know, as you, as you evolve, we still gotta be by the book, but you know, as you get into later term, um, later points in your career, more of that survival element comes into play where you can kind of start bringing, you know, parts of your personality, parts of, you know, other things that you learn. But I always found myself coming back to the fundamentals of just doing what's in the book. And I can definitely thank 
Lee Hendricks for that. And that was Mr. Poncho's sister. The other barber, uh, who's actually a good friend of mine going back to middle school, going on 20 years now, guy by the name of John Cruz at Urban Shave Barbershop in Scotch Plains. About five years ago, I was selling life insurance and refereeing, and I really wasn't enjoying the, uh, the life insurance business. So I saw on Instagram, he was uh, training barbers, just helping barbers get better, um, you know, be it cutting hair, being uh, business at the business aspect of barbering. He just, he was very focused on helping barbers get better. And I had zero experience cutting hair, didn't know even how to hold a clipper, but I just called him up. I said, listen, if you teach me how to cut, I work for you. And he just told me to come in. I paid for his class and uh, he taught me everything he knows. He poured a tremendous amount of knowledge into me. And if it wasn't for him giving me that opportunity and the flexibility of being a barber, you know, just managing my schedule, then I can honestly say that I wouldn't be able to have made the progress that I made as an official in the last five years, be it from college to the professional scene, the TBL, and even coming out here. Because, you know, they say the most important availability, the most important ability in officiating is availability. And through barbering, through other jobs that I've had, I was an Uber driver, limo driver for a while, everything to kind of preserve that availability aspect. I can definitely credit my man, John, for allowing me to be available to take advantage of all the opportunities and officiate while still making a very, very good income and being in an environment where I'm around a lot of like-minded individuals who continuously want to build their skill set. I've been able to meet some incredibly unique and, and, and privileged people and be able to provide that barber service for them. So it's been a very enriching experience being a barber. I miss it. <laughs> well, as, as you might know, I don't spend much time in a barber shop anymore. Um, I get the I best hot really towel cool. you've ever had, man. <laughs> I hear it's a really cool, really chill environment, which is kind of the opposite of what you get when at least half of the people hate everything that you do. So what is that environment like? What's it like being in, in the shop and working and just having a good time? It's a very casual yet professional environment because, you know, although the barbershop is a place where people come to relax, you know, kind of take a load off, get a haircut, we are still businessmen. So it's, it's actually been a privilege to combine those two elements. You know, once my clientele got to a point where, you know, I'm making some some pretty nice money, it would almost feel like I'm kind of hanging out at the barbershop all day. And then I come home with, you know, a fair amount of money in my pocket. So it, it was it was a really, really beautiful experience. And it, it actually allowed me to achieve that, quote, work-life balance, where I was able to really work at my, my passion in officiating and still have a bit of a social life, interact with friends, interact with family. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed that. That's, that, that's awesome, man. I love it. Um, I got off the court stuff that is kind of my center too. And so, I mean, I, I, I couldn't imagine my life without it. I mean, I love being on the court and I catch as many games as I can, but, you know, I, mm -hmm. I got to keep that part off the court because then, you know, that's, it's just my happy place. I mean, I love being on the court and that competition that you get, right? Yep. And there's, there's something about competition. You just, you don't get there 
you know, your player, coach, you know, or an official, you don't get there if you don't have the competition going on. Absolutely. I've also been able to um, give a couple of my referee buddies some haircuts. I was able to turn some uh, some partners into clients. So it's always good, uh, you know, seeing them come in the barbershop. And I really appreciate those guys for coming in and showing me love. Awesome. It was always interesting. Well, uh, my man John would always say it's interesting when they would come in and they would hear us, you know, kind of talking referee stuff. And it almost feel like we're talking a different language because we all talk sports in the barbershop, but very few people actually get to hear referee talk. So yeah. I would yeah. actually notice sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm working on my man, Bobby Hope, for example, um, another, another guy I learned from uh, really early. We just get into a conversation about officiating and I would notice the entire barbershop would just kind of get quiet. <laughs> and as we're talking about, you know, secondary defenders, block charges and whatnot, everybody's like, what are they talking about? <laughs> But it was it was definitely definitely refreshing to be able to kind of bond with my, my referee brothers in a different setting. And then be able to, you know, talk to my clients, kind of give them a little bit, I guess a little bit different perspective of sports and kind of talking them through some of the stuff that we go through as a basketball referee. It helped me learn a little bit more of the game too, because when you have to explain it to somebody who doesn't really understand the business it makes you sort of simplify it so you can explain it to them. But in that simplification, you understand it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have 20 minutes to talk to a coach about, you know, black guard play and why, why, why that's a travel or not, you know, exactly. You, you gotta, you gotta get it in. Right? Exactly. It out. Um, you mentioned uh, fundamentals a minute ago, and uh, you know one of the pet phrases around here that we use is "let's be great," right? Um, so, talk to me on the court uh, as a fit, as an official, right? From official to official, uh, talk to me about uh, what are the impact plays um, that you see? You know, whether it's today in the NBL or you're coming up, you know, throughout your career. Um, what do you do? What are the impact plays that you think that when you think impact play as an official, what do you think about? And then what do you do for those plays to make sure you get them right? I would say a lot of the impact plays are, you know, things like block charges, uh, plays to the hoop, uh, verticality plays, um, and ones, you know, late game situations. Um, you know, you have your occasional unsportsmanlike conduct, um, you know, kind of intense personalities clashing, learning how to deal with those. But from a block charge standpoint, one of the things that helped me out as far as accuracy is concerned is it depends on what position you're in. From the lead, my main priority is identifying that secondary defender as quickly as possible. That way I can identify whether or not he has legal guarding position. Once I get that secondary defender, then I'm quickly going over to the offense to identify where they are. Um, you know, if they left the ground, if they started, they gather. That way I know what to do. I can also read, you know, if the defender's in the restricted arc or the no charge semicircle, as they call it out here. Right. Uh, and ones, and ones have always been kind of tricky to me because, you know, one of the common concepts in basketball officiating is start, develop, finish. 
and also kind of letting the players play. But on the flip side, there's certain, there's a lot of plays where these superior athletes are able to finish through contact. That is a foul. And even though they are able to finish through it, that doesn't mean we don't have to call a foul or we shouldn't call a foul because at the end of the day, it's still a missed call on our part. If a guy gets hit, guy gets hit. If he's able to finish through that hit and score, hey, good on him. You get extra right. free throw. Yeah. Verticality is definitely tough as well. And I think that goes back to identifying the secondary defender because, you know, we're dealing with, especially on a professional level, we're dealing with guys that are able to cover ground very quickly and get up in the air very quickly. Yeah. So it's a matter of recognizing that that defender got to his spot and rose straight up. And any contact that does occur was initiated by that offense. And it's not a foul on the part of the defender. Right. Those plays tend to look crazy, especially when the offense ends up going to the ground. You know, we tend to we tend to want to put whistles on plays where the offense hits the ground. But when you get a good defender who's able to get to that spot early and rise straight up in the air, Defender's not doing anything wrong. And, and the main question is, what did the defender do wrong? Right. And if you're having a hard time answering that question, probably don't have a foul. Right, yeah. Late game, late game situations, my main focus is, well, my main focus throughout the game is one play at a time. You know, referee this play the best way you can, move on to the next play. But late game, we're talking last, you know, four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. My main focus is calling the obvious and being able to explain what I call should I have to. Um, really isn't the time to you know get too cute with what you're calling because if you really have to apply too much of an explanation as to what you're calling, probably didn't need a whistle on it anyway. Stuff that we call in those last two minutes, those crucial times, it should be obvious. It should be very understandable to everybody that's looking at it. And it should be something that the game needs, you know, right. be it a foul, be it a, a out of bounds, be it a, a block charge play. Um, late game situations, we want to call, we want to call plays that the game needs. And we also want to be conscious of the fact that there may be plays that may not need a whistle going back to verticality, you know, being a late game situation, you know, we may be a little bit more tense. And when we see bodies bang, we may jump on that play. But it's just a matter of being relaxed, keeping your air low and staying patient and letting the whole play develop, seeing, you know, kind of letting the play play out and then making the decision as to whether or not we need to put a whistle on it. Yeah. Uh, the, the keep your air low. That was one I heard that a couple of weeks ago. And then I, I, you know, a day or two later, I took it into a game. And that was the most fun I think I've had, in a, you know, kind of ever because it just seemed to slow everything down. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, it, you know, a foul was still a foul, a travel was still a travel, but, you know, it, it just, it was just clear, right? It, it, I didn't, I wasn't carrying around that, you know, you know, I wasn't just ready to jump on anything that I have to, okay, now I got to slow down. And did, or did, you know, I, it was just, okay, here we go. Here we go. I see this. <laughs> oh, no, got nothing, right? Or, oh, yep, there we go. There's that hit or there's that, you know, defenders flying in underneath. Okay, yep, time to come in and yep. get that one. 
And it sounds crazy to say, because I mean, we're all adults, we should kind of figure this out, but knowing how to breathe is, is very essential in officiating because when your air is up here and you're taking those very shallow breaths, that's what's triggering anxiety in the brain. And that's what's causing us to make a lot of those quick reactionary decisions. However, when you're getting really good deep breaths, your breath is down here. Just that action of bringing your breath from up here to here to put air in that whistle could be just enough time to let that place start, develop, and finish. And then you realize, you know what? Doesn't need a whistle. Or bringing your air from here to here as the place starts, develops, and finishes. And then you see him get hit on the wrist and you're like, yeah, that needs a whistle. But if your air is up here, we're all just trying to breathe. And right. when you see a play, whoop, now whistles out of your mouth, you're taking a deep breath and you're like, oh, I didn't need to call that at all. So yeah. breathing is, is, is definitely important. One exercise that I learned off, uh, off Instagram, ironically, is um, it's kind of a, a anti-anxiety sort of breathing mechanic where you take a big deep breath in your nose and then squeeze another one in just to get that last bit of oxygen in and then a hard deep breath out. And I found that that really, really does a great job of stabilizing my energy, kind of stabilizes my heart rate and breathing rate. And it really, like you said, it kind of slows things down and it allows you to just analyze the entire game, the entire play. Very nice, very nice. Um, so seeing of 10 plays, um, uh, when guys are going at, you know, we, we talk about coaches, too, um, but when guys are going at it and it's starting to become non-basketball extracurricular, uh, what what's your attitude? How do you handle that play that that sort of play? Uh, how do you be great in that moment? For me, the main priority is is become a presence. Dead ball officiating is incredibly crucial, especially in some of the environments that I was able to develop in. You know, some of those outdoor street ball environments, and um, even in you know, more, more structured pro environments. We're all competitive. We're all trying to win. And, um, you know, sometimes guys' tempers can get out of line. But I found that once, you're, once you establish yourself as a presence in that situation, you're able to diffuse it a lot more as opposed to kind of being on the outside and just saying, hey, guys, settle down. What are you doing? Or even just kind of throwing technical fouls around. Sometimes just getting in between them, giving a blast, giving a couple blasts of the whistle and saying, Hey guys, settle down. That'll kind of take the focus from the guy that they're going at to you. And as long as I can get their attention, most of the time the situation's able to kind of fizzle out. Now they're complaining to me about what the other guy's doing versus addressing the other guy about what the other guy's doing. And I can handle that. It's a lot easier for me to handle, oh, he's pushing me, oh, he's pushing me, rather than two guys pushing each other. Yeah, yeah. Good example this last weekend. I had two really good coaches, and each one of them had a little something. Hey, watch for this, look at this. You know, they're standing, you know, and you know, I, I said, Hey, coach, great communication, really appreciate that because it just it let them have their voice, let them get heard. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and then clued me into stuff that to make sure I was, you know, sometimes you know, I'm not changing what I call because coaches, this is happening, but you know. Sometimes it's in the, on a step to the left or a step to the right, make sure I have an angle so that I can adjudicate, you know, that particular play. Most of the time it was nothing, but still, you know, mm -hmm. hey, okay, he's worried about this. 
I'm going to take that extra one extra step, do a little extra hustle, make sure I get in position so I can adjudicate that 100%. Um, and even there, it just it helps keep the game moving in the right direction. And then when I need to get something, then I can go get it. Absolutely. Coaches, they just want to be heard and acknowledged. They want to know that when they're communicating with you, you know, it, it you're, you're hearing them. You're trying to apply what you're hearing from them out onto the floor. They're not always going to be able to talk you into making a call, obviously. But I found that, you know, just simple eye contact, like, okay, coach, I hear you. We're looking for it. That allows them to just go back to focusing on coaching their players rather than trying to coach us, if you will. Yeah. So have you heard Ken uh, Paul's rapid response series and any of that, the stuff from there from Brown Rapid? Absolutely. A um, couple pieces on Instagram that I've heard uh, have definitely been helpful that I've been able to bring into the game. Uh, one main thing that stands out was uh, in reference to coaches addressing the foul count. And I really like his response to it as far as, you know, if it's 5-1, just really nipping that in the butt. Hey, coach, mentioning the foul count like that is extremely unsportsmanlike, and we're not going to have that. I was able to bring that into a couple situations and, and it really helped out because at the end of the day is what you say and how you say it. Some coaches are able to convey that message a little bit friendlier in a way that, you know, doesn't really feel unsportsmanlike. And then other coaches, they're just straight up questioning your integrity. And it's about reading the situation, reading the room a little bit and understanding how he's trying to communicate that and just dealing with it accordingly. Some coaches, they're a little bit more sarcastic about it. And sometimes you can you can reply with a little bit more of a sarcastic response, like, oh, gee, thanks, coach. I wasn't that good at math. I, I was helping, I was having trouble getting the five. So I really appreciate you. But um most of the time, back to coaches just wanting to be acknowledged and wanting to be heard, you know. But I can say that when the situation does get like that, let's just say the foul count there's a little bit of a difference in foul count. One of the things that goes into my mind is, okay, on this end, we don't want to miss anything, but we also don't want to make anything up. Let's not start putting whistles on marginal stuff just to make that foul count, you know, just to make the scoreboard look a little bit better because that's when we start inserting incorrect calls into the game and that can totally throw off the balance of the game. Yeah. Yeah, I had a 7-2 game a couple – couple weeks ago and it was it was moving fast and I we didn't even really have time to think about you know you know should we add fouls here add fouls here and we're, mm -hmm. we're now we're just gonna rough this game we got enough to worry about anyway I looked mm -hmm. the score sheet at the end of the game it was nine to ten right and we we didn't do anything whatsoever to try and manage it just you know mm -hmm. it just ebbs and flows and a lot of times it's just gonna end up you know, being close because, you know, some, I had the start of a uh, high school game and there was one kid that just kept having open court foul, just diving in and just running into the, the offensive ball handler. And I had to put a whistle on it because he interrupted the play, right? And, and you know, knocked the ball away. He needs the whistle. And so there we go. We start the game, three zips on foul count yep. two minutes in. Yep. Right? So, yep. And it's, uh, a, it's, it's more of a boxing analogy or more of a, a fight analogy, but styles make fights. You know, you'll have a team that's more attacking the basket 
which is obviously going to draw more fouls than not versus another team that just likes to run and gun, just, you know, shoot the ball from anywhere. Um, you know, we call them eight second offenses where they just get the ball and just shoot from anywhere. And long shots usually create long rebounds, which usually create fast break opportunities in the other end, which could yield fouls. So most of the time when the foul count gets to be a lot to a little, it's nothing we're doing wrong. Nothing necessarily we're doing right. It's just, that's just the way this, the game is being played at the moment. Yeah. So do you have any uh, Ken Widgen rapid responses to add to the, the deck to share with the rest of the Crown Rest refs crew? Uh, I would say strong eye contact and say, I'm looking for it. I hear you. Those are my main two. I would say probably my only two because <laughs> uh, they, they, they work pretty well. Um, yeah. Everybody just wants to be heard and acknowledged. Um, sometimes there may yeah. be a need for a little bit more conversation. You know, let's go back to a verticality play in the point guard or like a um, guy who's attacking the basket is asking why that wasn't a foul. I'm like, hey, listen, you made a great play to the basket, but I'm looking at that defender. He's jumping straight up. You're initiating contact. So being able to have quick responses and explanations to plays without going into a dissertation, it displays that, you know, you're obviously looking at the play and although it didn't work out the way he wanted it to, it just gives him a little bit more understanding as to why you did or didn't call what you call. Yeah. Yeah. And that they appreciate the fact that you can give them a breakdown of a play, right? That you yep. you've got the play recall that shows that you were, you were following your, your sequence, your progressions, that you knew what was going on, and you can break that play down for them, and you're like, okay, I was hoping okay. for something different, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Yep. Um, talking inside the inside the line, um, when we were chatting it ahead of time, uh, you mentioned Ronnie Nunn and his philosophy of empty space. Did you share that philosophy with the rest of the Crown Risk crew? Absolutely. And it's definitely something that helped me become a stronger official in the league. More often than not, when the ball goes weak side, there'll be a period where there'll be empty space on that opposite block. And although we are looking to become a strong side official, uh, a great analogy that Ronnie Nunn gave to me was essentially real estate. Like that real estate around the basket, that block area, you know, that's, that's like, that's like a park Avenue. That's like a Jersey shore beach house. That's prime real estate that the offense and defense want to get offense because it's close to the basket. You can score easier defense because it's close to the basket. You can score easier. So I found that when that ball goes strong side and I rotate over into that empty space and kind of let the action come towards me in that lead position, more often than not, it does. And instead of chasing that play and trying to rotate over after the action goes there, I'm already there to officiate that play. And I've been able to be a lot more accurate in the decisions that I make when I'm over there. So basically rotating a little bit earlier while still officiating that action, that post action that you may have that you're rotating from and just letting the play come towards you. Very cool. Um, now you, you're, you're a literally professional referee with the NBL, uh, and that is the National Basketball League out in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. How did you get that opportunity? How did, how did that 
how did that sequence of events lead to you getting out to Australia? Uh, Ronnie Nunn and just as importantly, the TBL. Uh, the TBL is a tremendous professional league. There's about 50, 60 teams throughout the country. And I can honestly say that to any official that's looking to improve their game, improve their, their eye speed, their play processing speed, game management, um, situational awareness, I highly suggest reaching out to Paul Carter and trying to figure out a way to get into the TBL, especially if you do have aspirations of becoming a professional basketball referee, because it is professional basketball. NBA rules, NBA mechanics, NBA clocks, it's, it's the full NBA professional system. So if pro ball is what you want to do, the TBL is, is really where you need to be. Um, as far as how I got out into the NBL, uh, Scott Butler, he reached out to Ronnie Nunn and um, expressed interest in bringing out an international official to add to the NBL staff. So Ronnie Nunn threw my name in a pot with, uh, I think, about 30, 40 other referees. And we were asked to send a resume. We were asked to send about uh, five, six games worth of film. And I sent them some TBL games. I sent them about five TBL games. And I sent him a uh, high school game that another mentor of mine, uh, Terry Gilbert, in the New York Pro-Am Association, assigned me to at the Barclays Center back in 2019. And I pretty much sent them that film because it was just great quality game film. It's in the Barclays Center. Um, we're, we're not as spoiled as, as I am out here to have access to a lot of high quality game film. So I made a point to send them that one just because you know, 1080p in a, in a nice stadium, really nice competition. I think it was Roselle Catholic versus the Patrick School. And uh, some of those players that played in that game, they're in the NBA now. So I think it was a, a good representation of my ability to, to work basketball at a relatively high level. But um, Scott, you know, took a liking to me. He watched uh, some of my film and, you know, saw that I would be a, a solid addition to the team. And now here I am. Awesome. Uh, so for the, most of us are not out in Australia watching NBL uh, on a regular basis. What is that game like? How is that different from what we see here in the States? For, and a lot, most folks are you know, familiar with like the collegiate level. So like D1, D2, D3 versus MPL. What does that game look like down there? I would say, although the NBL is a professional league, you know, we're talking, you know, some of the best players on earth. There are some similarities to the college game that, was a little bit of an adjustment to me. And the main thing is action in the paint. There's no defensive three seconds in the NBL and you're allowed to play zone defense in the NBL, which creates a lot more action in the paint to referee, mainly from the center position. Um, you know, back home in the TBL, a lot of the pro-am settings that I'm working, the style of play in America is more open. Uh, pick and rolls, pick and pops, ISOs, you know, you'll get your occasional post up every now and then, but usually that paint area is wide open, which allows decisions to be made. One, a lot, I, I guess a lot more patiently because you can see the play develop a lot more and you don't have to look through as many players in order to get a good position to make a good decision. So that was definitely my biggest adjustment coming out here, just having so much action in the paint on, place to the hoop and rebounding to referee. Uh, also, 
there's we play 10 minute quarters. So that's a little bit like college, but we use a 24 second shot clock out here. So there's still that up and down aspect of, of uh, professional basketball, more NBA style basketball, but there's less time to play. So I've noticed that teams have a little bit more of a sense of urgency to get as many possessions as possible because obviously possessions can lead to score. So you get that that college aspect of a lot of action in the paint to referee, but you still get that, you know, pro aspect of it's very up and down, uh, very, very scoring oriented, very just trying to put as many points up as possible. They also tend to run a lot more, not that it's more strategic, but there's a lot of sets that are common in the, the U.S. pro basketball system that once you see it a couple of times, you kind of understand what each team is trying to do. I would say in the NBL, there's a couple of teams that run legit offensive plays like like they do in college. So there's that aspect as well. They're, they're not quite as so in the United States, you've got these, you know, world class, just one in, you know, nine billion athletes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I was a Dallas fan watching uh, LeBron James, you know, go crazy mm-hmm. in 2011. And I'm just like, please stop posting up. Please stop posting up. <laughs> it's unstoppable. Every time he posted up, Absolutely. From a skill set standpoint, um, the, the NBL and the NBA, I would say they're right there. You got your outliers, like, you know, your LeBrons, your Steph Curry's, you know, your Russell Westbrook's, uh, you know, your Victor Wimbiano, who's who's been amazing to watch this year. But uh, from a skill set standpoint, I can honestly say that it's been a real pre- privilege to work in the NBL because, it's some of the best basketball on earth from, you know, just a skill set standpoint, how these guys play the game. Uh, so how, what have you had to do and how have you had to adjust to um, operate effectively uh, at that NBL level? The main thing that I definitely had to address and adjust was my presence in the center position i.e. recognizing calls that needed to get made and having the confidence to go get those calls. Uh, We're privileged here to actually have our call stats tracked and presented to us in pretty easy to see, um, you know, pie charts and graphs and whatnot. And lead and trail, you know, in America, we get a lot of action, you know, in the lead and trail area. And, you know, I'm relatively highly accurate in the lead and trail position, but my accuracy dipped by you know, almost 10% in the center position. And most of those inaccuracies came from incorrect no calls, i.e. whistles that needed to be made or whistles that I needed to have that I just didn't call. When I blow my whistle, I noticed that I'm very, very accurate, but the stuff that I was passing on, mostly from the center position that was tracked in those stats, and then going back and actually seeing those plays were plays that, one, I was in position to see, but for some reason, I guess I just overprocessed and kind of analysis paralysis. And two, just needed to have the confidence and understanding that you need to go get that. Like that's your play, go get it. If you have a double whistle, oh well, at least we saw it. So I would say that was definitely my biggest adjustment. 
Um, the other adjustment is in the first half, they actually go towards their bench. You know, in America, okay. um, they always go opposite the bench. So the logic out here is in that first half, coaches would like to be able to coach the offense in the first half. And second half, you know, if the offense is going away, now they're coaching the defense. Yeah, and the, I think NCAA women's has, has done that flip also. Uh, and it's about the previously defensive coach just after his basket is scored is now the offensive coach. And they might want an instantaneous timeout so to be able mm. to have an official right there, right, within, mm. you know, eight feet of them, whether they're, you know, center just a couple steps down or uh, trail just a couple steps up, if they can just time out and get that time out yeah. in, you know. That defensive time. Yeah, I, I had a loud play and, you know, we were working two-man and I thought he was yelling, get back, get back. And turns out coach was yelling, time out, time out. And he's just, literally had to run all the way down to the end of the line and scream in my ear. Time out. Uh, oh, yes. Time yes. out. I got you, coach. I got well, you, the coach. other cool thing about out here is um, coaches actually call a timeout via the scores table. So they have to request a timeout from the scores table. Once a timeout opportunity comes, then the scores table will hit the horn and stop the game and, and adjudicate the timeout. So it takes a little bit of responsibility off of the official, like in that situation you just mentioned, yeah. to referee the game and also recognize when the coach is calling a timeout because that takes focus away from what we're looking at on the court. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I want to flip that question about what have you had to change? Um, what have you found would apply to any official at any level anywhere? Uh, now that you've gotten all the way up to NBL, uh, what are what are just the, some absolute core nuggets that any official should put into any game at any level? Hmm. Um, seven letters, and, and I get that from, from Ronnie Nunn. SDF, start, develop, finish. RSBQ, rhythm, speed, balance, quickness. If any of those seven letters are interrupted, you probably got a whistle. Um, aim small, miss small. I got that from Al Batista as far as um, jump shots and, you know, fouls in the wrist, fouls in the hands. You know, just understanding that although, you know, we may see big contact on plays, it doesn't take a whole lot of contact in order to put that offensive player at a disadvantage. So even a simple fingertip bru um, brush on the elbow, being able to see that comes from aiming small, missing small. And as I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about um, a foul that I unfortunately missed on a left-handed three-point shooter because I was looking at his left hand, making sure that arm didn't get touched. But I did miss a brush on the right elbow because, you know, I'm looking at the left hand. He's a left-handed shooter. But um, aiming small, miss small, start, develop, finish, um, making sure everybody gets a safe place to land, be it airborne shooters or rebounders you know nobody likes to have their landing space taken out and when players get the feeling that you're out there to protect them and keep them safe then that improves that level of respect because they know that you're not going to let anything happen to them without it being addressed yeah yeah and, and also just just one play at a time 
you know, we get so much information. We're so privileged to be able to go to all of these camps and we got sources like Crown Refs and that, um, that give us so much information. It can almost get to the point where, and, and personally, you know, an adjustment that I had to make, we're filtering what we see out on the court through all of the information that we've taken in and then making a decision rather than just seeing a play and calling the play. So just take it one play at a time, referee what you see, call what you can see and explain, and then just move on to the next play. Um, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to listen to it. Um, I, Scott Butler, who you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, Paul did a video blog with Scott and that was really a neat perspective to hear a high, high level assigner and, and uh, you know, head of training talk about, you know, their approach to the game and what they're looking for. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned this as well, that all the data that Scott brings to the table. Um, and he was talking about, you know, as a professional league, you've got anywhere from, you know, eight to 12 cameras on a game. So you have, every angle right because one of my pet peeves is film doesn't lie yeah but it leaves out a lot of context a lot of times because you don't know what the flow of the game was and there's a great clip from one of the one of the got youtubers here in the united states where it's the classic mid-court camera and you're looking at it and it looks clearly like you know uh a charge call um you get the, we just happened to have because it was a state finals game. You know, just happened to have an inline camera. An inline camera clearly sees the, the knee come into the offensive player, and it's very clear why the call that the official made was absolutely right. But you look at that mid-court camera, you're like, "How's he doing that?" Right? I'll say I'll say two things to that. You know, I know they say film doesn't lie, but good film doesn't lie, and one of, the, one of the other things I picked up from uh, from Al Batista was a concept called beat the tape, beat the camera. Um, we want fouls, we want plays that we put whistles on to show up on camera. And sometimes plays that we put whistles on may not show up on camera, but it's a matter of us being in the right position to make the right call, despite how it may show up on film. You know, grandma in the 20th row with her Android camera, it may show a foul, but you know, on the baseline, like you just mentioned, that camera in the stands may not pick up that offensive player. I mean, that defensive player moving towards the offensive player after they establish that legal guard position, which would then make it a block. So they say tape don't lie, but good tape don't lie. Right, right. So uh, what is, what are, tell us more about what it's been like working for Scott Butler and the resources he gives you uh, to help you guys grow as a, as, a, as an officiating um, crew? It's been a tremendous experience working for Scott. And it, it actually brings me back to a feeling of being a college basketball player, um, being on some of those high level high school and club teams, because you can actually feel that he has a very vested interest in your development as an official. He wants you to get better and he's willing to pour all of the resources that he has available to him into you so you get better. So, you know, one of the things that I had to adjust to was, you know, just taking in all of that information 
and putting it in an area of my mind where I can apply it, but not having it right here where I'm filtering right. it all through what I'm seeing out on the court. So, um, you know, when I'm out there, I really just took on like a, a one play at a time mentality and just moving on to the next play because if I got the call right, it'll show in the clip breakdown. Scott will let me know. If I got the call wrong, it'll show in the cl uh, clip breakdown and Scott will let me know. Nice. So um, you, you, you talked some really uh, wise uh, things about um, as officials, we got to process a lot of information um, and, and we have to not overload ourselves so that we're, you know, been behind the play and that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, talk to us a little bit about what you do, uh, not necessarily in a pregame, I'll, I'll ask you that next, um, but just what's your game day routine, you know, before you, you know, up to the point where you start walking into the facility? How do you prepare mentally? What, what makes you be your best on a game day? I would say the biggest thing for me is being as relaxed as possible. Um, having to get used to all of the traveling that we're doing. It's, um, it's been a bit of a challenge to establish a legit game day routine, but it mainly centers around getting a good night's rest, making sure I'm hydrated throughout the day. Um, the coffee out here in Australia is very, very delicious and very, very strong. So <laughs> had to uh, be a little bit more conscious of my caffeine consumption because when you're drinking a lot of coffee, your heart's racing a lot, your thoughts are racing a lot, and then that can go back to, you know, jumping on plays. But just staying really centered, um, focusing on some key things as far as the individual matchups that we may have for that particular night. Um, we're spoiled to have a lot of game film available to us. So, you know, I'll try and check out, you know, some, some of the previous game film, maybe the last game that each of the two teams have played just to get a feel for, you know, who, who their roster is, who their main players are, and um, just really getting on the same page with my partners. You know, we'll meet up earlier in the day when we're on the road, you know, maybe have some breakfast, have some lunch, just kind of talk about the matchup. And then once we get to the locker room, it's more getting personally prepared, you know, getting our body right, warm-ups and whatnot. And then before we really get out there, we'll do a quick 10 to 15-minute pregame just to go over, you know, some core points, some, um, you know, just some core sticking points that we want to bring out there. And then once I get out there, it's just a matter of getting focused, um, getting relaxed, reminding myself, you know, start, develop, finish, aim small, miss small. Um, it's my sideline until they take it away. And that comes, and that comes into play basically on the trail and center positions and knowing when to step out and on the court to get a good look through the offense and defense. Mm -hmm. And ultimately just reminding myself that this is the fun part, you know, games, games, sports in general, sports is supposed to be fun. Yeah. I might put that on a t-shirt, try and make some money, but this is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to be enjoying this. And I think a lot of us get lost on that and trying to evolve, trying to get better and not enjoying this job that we're, that we're privileged to be out here working. So right before the ball goes up, you know, if I'm doing the toss, you know, I'll tell myself this is the fun part. If I'm you one and you two, right before that ball goes up, I'll say audibly out to myself, this is the fun part. And then the game gets started. Awesome. Love it. Yeah, I, 
I spent a little while as a coach and that was my number one rule for the kids is have fun because everything else comes after that, right? If you're not having fun, then the growth and development just doesn't happen. If you're not enjoying it, you're probably not going to do well at it. Yep. And uh, if you heard the 10,000 hour, you know, rule, you know, that it takes 10,000 hours. You're not having fun. You're not putting 10,000 hours in, right? You're not if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to get that 10,000. Yep. Um, uh, just selfish here. Um, when you're, you're having that lunch, um, and you're talking business, uh, of basketball, uh, what are some of the things you guys talk about as crews, uh, help you, your crew be great that later that day? We'll talk about, uh, player personnel, player tendencies, um, who's injured, who's not, who's healthy. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, coaching personalities, coaching tendencies, um, maybe uh, certain details about the venue. You know, um, this table crew may be strong, this table crew not maybe not strong. Um, this particular venue may have a faulty shot clock. This particular venue may have a faulty game clock. Um, how the arena set up, we may have more room on the end line and the sideline in this arena than other particular arenas. Just um, just little details to kind of just so you're not going in there blind, especially me because this is my first year in the league. It's um, it's actually been really refreshing being around guys that have been around the league for a while, and they're able to kind of hit me to little things that I'll notice out there on the court, and it may be a little bit distracting. But if I know that that's gonna be there once I get into the arena, then it's then it's no problem. So what do you do? Um... You know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, this is the fun part about starting the game. Um, what do you do uh, kind of like through the first, second, and third quarters? What's your mental attitude? What's your mental approach to make sure you you stay at a good level uh, through that the, the first three quarters of the game? As simple as it sounds, it's, it's literally just one play at a time. And I'll say to myself, pretty much on every new possession, next play. I'll try and get a look at the clock, see when the possession starts, and just take it one play at a time. Uh, they, they teach us catalog plays, you know, to try and match, you know, this play to this play. And I found that in trying to do that and remembering, oh, how did I call that in the first quarter versus how am I going to call this play that's happening to me in the third quarter? You get almost analysis paralysis, but when you really just take it one play at a time and call a play according to your fundamentals, according to your position, according to the way that you've been trained to call it, the consistency will take care of itself because you're calling plays consistently. Um, and I left fourth quarter out for a reason because fourth quarter, hopefully we have a close game and mm -hmm. everything is kind of headed to that point. Um, Hopefully things aren't going, you know, crazy. There's no craziness. Uh, I'll ask you about crazy in a minute. Um, but, you know, when, when you get to that fourth quarter where everybody's trying to be their best, the coaches are trying to be the best, their fans are trying to be their best, uh, and the players and, of course, the officials, we need to be our best too. Um, so, so what do you do to bring yourself to a peak for that fourth quarter so that you can be a great judgment of, that doesn't need a whistle, that does. 
the main thing that I'm focused on is keeping my energy very level, keeping my awareness at, at the same level that, that it's been at, you know, for the first, second, and third quarter as far as what we're putting whistles on, what we're passing on, and um, just trying to call the obvious. You know, most plays present themselves. Travel will jump out and bite you. A foul will jump up and bite you. But um, I found that when you're able to kind of get in there and get some of those plays that may be more 57-43, you know, as far as like 50-50 plays, those are some of the plays where you're able to kind of stand out a little bit and kind of manage the game a little bit better. But for the most part, I'm looking to really take care of the easy and obvious, be aware of the little things, and just maintain a high level of accuracy and awareness. Awesome. Um, so what about, uh, you know, game management when, when not necessarily even the fourth quarter, um, just, you know, something crazy happened, whether it's, you know, a blown call from somebody on the crew, um, you know, whether it's just a, a misunderstanding or, you know, two guys end up in a beef. Um, how do you handle things when, when tensions and people are kind of flying off? What's your attitude? How do you approach those situations? I would say the first thing I do is take a big, deep breath and kind of analyze, okay, like what's happening? As you're saying that, I'm thinking back to a situation I had in my last game at Cairns. We had a shot clock uh, malfunction. Ball goes up, doesn't hit the rim, offensive rebound. I see that the offense gets the rebound with like 1.4 left in the shot clock, excuse me. <clears throat> and they reset it to 24 and then they quickly reset it to 14 seconds. But the game clock, um, and we got some great backup from the replay center. The game clock was at, I think, 341 when they got the offensive rebound, goes to 340, balls in the air. So ends up being an and one, guy gets fouled, basket counts, and the Coach is going crazy because he's thinking it should have been a shot clock violation right. because the ball right. didn't hit the rim. And to a degree, he's correct. The ball didn't hit the rim. But having that awareness of the game clock and shot clock, I went over and tried to explain to him. He wasn't very receptive of it. Listen, they got the ball at 1.4, quickly went up. We got a foul. There's no shot clock violation. So it just goes back to having an awareness of, pretty much the whole game, just mm -hmm. clock situation, uh, ball status, player status, and just being able to have an accurate and concise explanation as to what's going on. Fourth quarter, last two minutes, everybody's energy is super high. They may not be the most receptive to it, but they'll definitely respect you at least having an explanation to it versus you know, kind of trying to ignore the culture, kind of trying to ignore the players and quickly rush into that next play. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved your first statement, which is take a big, big deep breath, right? Because so much goes better there. And you know, stuff is of, happening really fast. One of the tools in my tool belt is, you know, I will take time to have, give somebody an explanation that they don't really necessarily need or, you know, isn't needed from a technical aspect, but it just mm -hmm. gives everybody on the court a little moment to catch their breath just a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And and just, you know, oh, come here, guys, and talk to the crew about a play sometimes. Not because mm -hmm. I have any question about what, but just 
get everybody to take a breath, right? Because mm -hmm. people are just, you know, and then particularly, you know, if this was a weird call, you know, it's not an obvious, but you know, you know, your partner had it right. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you didn't have perfect look at it. You know, your partner had it right. You know, if you, everybody comes in there and, you know, everybody's shaking their head and then they go and they go report. Yep. The coach may not like the call, but he just watched three officials, you know, all nod their head in agreement that that's what we got here. You know, and absolutely. Yeah. You may argue a little I, bit, but yeah, I think about hard fouls when you mention stuff like that. You know, we may see it, we may all see it. And it may just be a physical play, a physical foul, nothing unsportsmanlike, nothing excessive. But yeah. I've literally gone up to referees and been like, you know, make sure nobody can hear me. I'm just coming up to you to make it look like we're having a conversation about that play just because it was a, a tricky play. I'm going to nod my head, you nod your head, to shoot the free throws. But just that perception of communication, of poise, and, you know, us being on the same on the same page as far as the play that just happened, that boosts the crew's credibility. And that kind of takes, hopefully, it takes some of the anxiety off of the coach's part and, you know, we didn't miss anything. Right. Yeah. And if you have, if there is something worth talking about it, you of course talk about it in that moment. So mm -hmm. yeah, I love having that as a, as, as a thing that is true to that, you know, not that we're doing this every play, you know, but when the, when the moment calls for it, let's have a quick conversation, even if it's just, and hey, that was a great call, Ken. I like what you got there. Right. Mm -hmm. Way to be strong about that. You know, I'm glad you're on this crew because I certainly couldn't have got that from where I was standing. Great calmer man. You know, mm -hmm. he just says good things. Um, I got one more deep question I got for you. Um, and uh, let's talk about bringing this home. Um, game's over, you know, whether, you know, you had a good day or bad game. Um, what are you doing, uh, you know, mentally to kind of, cool down right and, and and to and 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 to get to baseline um what what's your process for getting home and you know just relaxing and letting letting the energy of the game go so that you can you know move on to your next day first word that comes to mind is silence <clears throat> in the sense of most of the environments i've been blessed to work in are incredibly noisy incredibly intense and from a sensory overload standpoint, it's just a lot of stuff that gets thrown at us. So yeah. usually when I'm driving home, I don't have the radio on, I don't have any music on. I'm just kind of enjoying the, the sound of my car motor and uh, mm -hmm. just really kind of decompressing. I'm thinking about, you know, how the game ended up, you know, things that I could have did well, uh, things that I could have did better, things that I did well, but, you know, really, making peace with the fact that the game's over. If um, if there's something to work on and it shows up on film, I'll be able to study it. If there's something that, you know, a, a, a coach or, or an assigner saw, I'm pretty sure he'll let me know about it. But for the most part, um, just, just making peace with the game and, and the fact that it's over and just, you know, kind of getting ready for the next game. Really cool, really cool. Well, Ken, um, go ahead and wrap this up. Um, first of all, thank you so much. I've uh, really enjoyed the time that you spent with me and appreciate your time and uh, you've given back to the game doing this. Um, 
I know I'm I'm going to really look forward to you know watching every minute of games that I can. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, any thank final you. words of advice or encouragement for the Crown Rest community? Mm, yeah, I would say as far as referees as they're trying to to move up, I would say it's important to make peace with the fact that although you can control your growth as an official personally, we're in no control of our growth from a schedule standpoint. We don't make the hiring decisions. We don't make the firing decisions. The only thing that we do have control over is the amount of time and dedication that we put into improving the craft. And there's, unfortunately, there's a shortage of referees and there's more basketball games out there than good officials are to officiate them. So as long as you keep working to improve and improving your craft and staying hungry and just keep getting in the building, getting around the right people, around the right mentors, eventually you'll get that call. And when you're ready, you'll be able to slide in there and, and, and flourish. And good to get a good haircut. Good a haircut good haircut is important. important. Absolutely. You need a good barber. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Ken Widgen Jr. It is, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for being part of the Crown Rest community and looking forward to hearing from you again sometime. Thank you so much, Sean. I really appreciate the time, Paul. I appreciate you, my man. And uh, to everybody out there, serve the game. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, you're welcome to, that'll be the official close. Paul, turn this out. And, <laughs> Seriously, you know, part of that was, you know, stagecraft, but again, thank you very much. It has been great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did my part. You made it easy. I mean, and, you know, I, I, you were talking for at least an hour solid there, my man. So thank you so thank much. You. you had lots and lots and lots of great stuff. So thank uh, you. again, this has been fantastic. And thank you very much. Um, appreciate the time and your you know, availability, right? You know, not a problem. Um, you know, it's a good chunk of time today uh, on the on the Zoom with me, and also, you know, it was huge for me personally that you you know gave me that time to do the prep and get to know you a little bit better and get let me think about and get some ideas about you know how to how to tell a good story uh, or, or or provide an environment for you to tell the good stories into. So again, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. I'm glad you're. So glad you're part of Crown Wrath, my man. Uh, you know, I've, I'm I'm the newcomer here, but you know, it's great seeing guys make success. And you know, I, you know, like like you, we don't control what we don't control. Um, but you know, I've, make I've peace what you can't control. Yeah, your story's fantastic, though. I mean, and what you've done to you know help guys or or, or the the, the the path you have charted for yourself um, is, I think, something that, you know, maybe not, you know, word for word and line for line that everybody wants to pick up, but there is something in here that somebody can take home. Um, and, you know, not this year. I'm going to be listening to this back again a year from now, right? Because I'm, I'm going to be in a different place and I'm going to, oh, he said that, but I didn't hear it. You know, and that's, you know, again, mentors are so fantastic. So thank you. you if I could add one more, be a, a, a long-term mentor, 
for you know two three hundred referees my man so thank you so much thank you thank you if i could add one more thing that that definitely helped me out i would say find a way to gain clarity as far as what you really want out of this officiating business because there are a bunch of different levels and venues that you can work at and although we are needed at all levels i think it's important from an individual standpoint to identify where you love working at the most it may be pro ball it may be college ball it may be high school ball it may be whatever level that is find a way to gain clarity on where you're most comfortable working at where you enjoy working at the most because i feel like that's where you'll be the most effective as an official and that's where you're the most needed as an official so just get crystal clear on what you want out of this business and then just get around the right people that can make that happen for you that's beautiful my man thank you thank you thank you for listening to the crown refs podcast serve the game all right johnny gleach reaching out uh we're going knee tuck comfortable feel you know easy to put on in the locker room for a game i'll put him hang my shirt up Put them on the shirt. Once you pop your shirt on, after you're done with stretching and warming up, you know they clip real quick. You can have a little slide, slide band to tighten them up and down. I like to go tight, just like a sneaker. When you place your shoes up, you like it tight. It's gonna loosen up after the game goes as you run, as your muscles flex, and they never ride up. Some, you know, I, I've had good success with these, keeping my shirt in. Uh, when you're at the free throw line, uh, watching the game, you don't want to be messing with your shirt, messing, messing with your shirt, messing with your pants. Uh, knee tucks are, you know, the way that, that helps us to not do that.